this chapter also with these uh, small cluster proverbs, with one, two, three, maybe five, six verses uh, in, in a section. Uh, it depends on how you divide them up. But there's about 30 of these from 20, the middle of 22 to the end of 24, uh, little clusters. Even, uh, we'll see in this one, some of the clusters adjacent to each other are kind of related also. But uh, would somebody read chapter 24, verses 1 and 2? Do not envy wicked men. Do not desire their company. For their hearts pop violence, and their lips talk about making trouble. Okay, again, don't envy the wicked and want to be with them because they are only thinking about wicked things and that's what they talk about. You know, often the heart precedes the mouth, the lips, because what comes into your heart comes out of your comes out in your in what you say. But don't join with them. Don't like what they do. They're just going to get you into trouble. Uh, have you ever noticed, maybe when you were younger, that when you were around certain people, you seemed to always get in trouble? <laughs> you know, uh, avoid those kind of guys, because uh, you're not responding well to uh, their company. Comments and thoughts on those two verses? Um, wicked men, like, I have a hard time looking at someone and saying, like, everything that you do is wrong. Like, you're totally wicked through and through. Sometimes I have a hard time knowing, like, what kind of person is this saying that I should... Good point. There probably aren't too many people who everything they do is wicked. It's like righteous men are not always consistent in that. But I would say rebellious people who are seeking to do wrong and not repenting of it. There's a difference between a person who makes mistakes, who stumbles and sins, but they don't like that and they try to correct that, as opposed to the person who just wants to do evil and they don't really care. Is that a reasonable distinction? All right, how about uh, some, some things about wisdom? This really is talking about the advantages of wisdom. I think we'll go ahead and read this whole section, but really it's divided into clusters. So let's read 3 to 9. Through wisdom, the house is built, and by understanding it is established. Our knowledge terms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is strong, yes, a man of knowledge increases strength. For by wise counsel you will wage your own war, and in multitude of counselors there is safety. Wisdom is too lofty for a fool. He does not open his mouth in the gate. He who plots to do evil will be called a steward. The devising of foolishness is sin, and the scoffer is abomination to him. Right. This really talks about different advantages that wisdom gives you. For example, in 3 and 4, what does wisdom do for you? Build your house. It'll build your house. You know, it will build you up. It will, it will make things sturdy and established. Because God made the world on the, principles of, on the principles of wisdom. So if you build your house by wisdom, it will, it will be strong. It fits with how God made the whole cosmos. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant things. Um, you know, we will have more and better things when we pursue them by wisdom. That's just true in a comprehensive sense. In 5 and 6, what does wisdom give us? Strength. And uh, you think about it, would you rather have wisdom or muscle? Wisdom. wisdom. 
Wisdom will win more fights than muscle will. Um, brains are better than brawn. Strategy is better than force. That's really true. But so often we value more the muscle. You know, but, but really wisdom is what gives you true strength that will accomplish something. And if you're really wise in verse 6, what will you seek? Because one of the first principles of wisdom is to recognize our ignorance. You know, um, if, if you know very much, you know how much you don't know and how much you need to learn. The person who thinks he knows it all and doesn't need anybody to, to advise him or to tell him what to do is truly foolish. That is not a wise thing. Uh, you know, so if you're, if you're wise, you never underestimate the value of good counsel, of good advice. How would you apply that in the spiritual realm? John? Well, we just talked about parenting. If we want to succeed at parenting, it's good to get good counsel to recognize I don't have all the answers. There's a lot of things I need to know that I don't know. So you find those who've proven themselves and you, you learn from them. Good, good application. What would be our motivation for not seeking advice in parenting when we're a parent? Humiliation. Maybe humiliation or pride, yes. Uh, those kind of the flip sides of the same coin. You know, I'd be embarrassed to ask for advice. Or maybe, well, I don't need anybody to tell me how to be a parent. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> you ever say that about anything? Well, I know about that. I don't need somebody to advise about that. It's like me asking for directions. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't we ask for directions? We know the weather. Yeah, we don't need any directions. I can figure this out. Yeah. Uh, how does that usually work? Find a way eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Desperate. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, we would save ourselves a lot of gas if we just asked for directions. You know. But our pride keeps us from being wise and seeking help. We want to pretend we know more than what we do. We don't want to humble ourselves. That's not wise. That's foolish. And that's true in a lot of areas of our lives. You know, think about the tendency as Christians to kind of withdraw ourselves. You know, I want to figure this passage out for myself. I don't really want anybody else telling me any, what they think about it. Because I, I want to decide for myself what I'm going to think and what I'm going to believe. Or I don't need to be open and talk to somebody else about my life. I can handle it myself. You know, I don't really like other Christians you know, interfering in my life and telling me what to do. You know, I feel like I can, I can decide what I'm going to do. I don't need somebody else, you know, meddling in my affairs. Do you ever feel like that? When you feel like that, you're not being wise. God put Christians together in a family because he knew we needed each other. He knew it would be better if we had the help of others. You know, and, and, and the idea that 
Well, I want to decide for myself what I'm going to believe, and I don't want somebody else, you know, trying to influence me. Well, do you think you're smarter than everybody else? And just how are you going to go about not being influenced? We've all kinds of influences in our lives to this point. And you know, sometimes we're like, I don't want any Christians to influence me, but it's okay if the non-Christians do. That doesn't make a lot of sense either. I threw out a lot of things at once there. Comments and thoughts on any of those, Brandon. What's it mean by, for by life counsel, you will wage your own war? I don't get the war part. Well, I think he's saying you're going to be a better warrior if you listen to your military advisors than if you just try to, you know, do it on your own. Other questions and comments as we're going through this, through verse 6. Say. I got a question and a comment. Okay. The comment is, there's a big spider, like, right behind you. You're right. <laughs> Thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> and this question is like, I'm reading. Uh, <laughs> you got me distracted. Thanks. Um, where, he's, where it says in verse 4 By knowledge, the rooms are filled with precious and pleasant riches. What's the difference between that verse and the verse in, like, the verses there being 23? Like, where, you know, the rich guys giving out food and stuff. Well, I think uh, when we pursue riches as the goal, that's a problem. When we do what God wants, he will bless us with prosperity. Other thoughts and comments to verse 6? In verse 7, a fool can't handle wisdom. You know, it's too exalted for a fool. You know, he just, he just doesn't make any sense to him. So, you know, he's out of his element when it comes to wisdom. He doesn't open his mouth in the gate. In the gate means... What does it mean in the gate? Around wise people. Yes, but... Where judgments are being given. Yeah, like in the courtroom or in the uh, mayor's office, you know, in a, in a, in a government uh, position like that. Why, do, why doesn't he open his mouth in the gates? Why doesn't he open his mouth in a courtroom or a place where, you know, people are discussing what the public policy will be? Someone once said he has nothing worthwhile to say in an intelligent conversation. Exactly. That's the fool. He's never at a loss for words until the conversation turns serious. And then he doesn't have anything to say. He doesn't know anything about it. You know, that's interesting. Are you that kind of person where you've always got, you know, something to talk about until we're actually talking about something that matters? You might think about this. Are you in this situation? If we're talking about movies, you know, music, you know, computer games, sports, you know, politics, oh, you got lots to talk about. Start to, the conversation turns to the Bible, you suddenly get quiet, or you don't get quiet, but what you say is really not very worthwhile at all. Well, you know what that says about us? We haven't really learned true wisdom. You know, we only know these hobbies of ours that really don't matter. Uh, so, you know, a, a wise person has something to say in a serious, important conversation. 
Comments through seven? In eight and nine, what do you think about a guy who plots evil? Puts all thought into it. Yeah, he puts all thought into his schemer. And that's what people call him. You know, you end up figuring out that this person is a wicked person, he's a fool, and, and he becomes an abomination to men. You know, eventually you see through the person. And you don't want to have anything to do with him. Eventually, even a politician who is really foolish, eventually, the people have enough of him. And they, they, they you know, are, are, they, they, won't, they won't elect him anymore. You know, like he's done one too many stupid things. So eventually, a fool gets known as a fool, and, and people will avoid him. So you just see a lot of principles in that section about wisdom and foolishness, even though we've got several clusters there. It's really all showing the blessing and advantage of wisdom. Comments and thoughts on anything through verse 9? Logan. Do you think that in verse 7 where it says that wisdom is too exalted for a fool, that it, that it could tie in like with Matthew 7 verse 6 where it says that you shouldn't toss your pillows before swine? Yeah, because like trying to, uh, trying to convince a fool with, with wisdom or trying to entice him by wisdom, he doesn't appreciate it. It's just way over his head. <laughs> You know, so he's never he's never going to be influenced by it. Good point. But how do you know if he's like a fool? Like, how do you know that he's not going to take the knowledge in? Try, try it and see what he does. <laughs> I think that's the only way to know. You know, if you see somebody who consistently and firmly rejects wisdom and you know they're a fool, uh, if somebody is just not informed, they'll listen and change and, and appreciate it. So I think we just have to try. So is that the difference between somebody being a fool or not being informed? Yeah, to some extent, because the fool is not just like information. He rejects the information he gets. He doesn't want to learn. Cameron? If they're rejecting it, are we supposed to try to find a way to be able to get to them, to be able to teach them the gospel, or are we just supposed to give up on them entirely? That's a great question. If this person is rejecting the gospel, should we find a way to get them to accept it? Or should we decide that they're just not going to receive it? Okay. I think a lot of it has to do with what attitude they're approaching things. Look at the difference in the way that Jesus approached different people. Um, he approached some people with a lot of kindness and with trying to help them understand. For example, with uh, um, Zacchaeus, he was kind with. Um, not so in uh, I love, um, Nicodemus in John 3. And on the other hand, there was the Pharisees who had clearly shown themselves to be hypocrites, clearly shown themselves to be insincere. He strongly condemns them in Matthew 23 um, and gives them some very, gives some very harsh words to them and so a lot of it, I would say, would have to do with, are they, are they simply having a hard time understanding? Are they struggling with some things? 
or are they just refusing to accept what you're saying? If they're refusing to accept what you're saying, then they're rebellion to God, and what you say isn't going to help them. I think that's a fair comment. It's certainly true that you could be impatient with someone who maybe you expect to just know a lot of things before you even teach them. You know, it's not unreasonable for us to patiently teach and show somebody what the truth is. And, and not every time somebody reads a verse will they automatically understand it the way you do without some help. So, you know, if we've studied something for years, it's going to be clearer to us at first than it is to them. We wouldn't just immediately write them off because they didn't quite get it the first time we went through it. <laughs> no, but, but I think what we're saying is what about somebody who just, they refuse it. They don't want it. They won't accept what's clear. And what we patiently taught them, they reject it. Should we try to find a different way so we can get them to accept it, or should we just write them off as fools? That's a good question. And I think it really is answered by the Bible. What would you say Jesus and the apostles would do in that situation? Remember what Jesus said when he sent out the apostles? What do you do if a city does not receive your message? Take the dust your feet and go out to a different city. Jesus never said, if the city rejects your message, then figure out a different approach that might make them accept it. <clears throat> because if people reject the gospel, whose fault is that? Theirs. Theirs. We sometimes think, oh, what did I do wrong? They rejected the gospel. I don't think that ought to be our automatic response. That wasn't Jesus. What if Jesus had done that? What if he just said, you know, Capernaum? I don't know where I went wrong. You know, I, I, I couldn't get you to accept it. You know, my bad. That's not what he said. That's not what he felt or thought. So we are patient. We're not saying we just, you know, are trying to cram something down somebody's throat and the moment they ask a question, we're ready to write them off. But we're saying it's really not our responsibility to make someone want the gospel or like it. We must have a... Is there a friend somewhere where he's dangerous? No. I can't find him. Uh, <laughs> what do you think? Yes. I mean, you know, it's not that if they reject it, then, you know, we're never going to speak to them again. Uh, you know, if they show a willingness, willingness to learn, then we can work with them. But, you know, we have better ways to spend our time than uh, talking to a stubborn person. Yeah, I'm particularly concerned that we not assume it's our fault when somebody doesn't listen. Because I don't think that's our fault. Now, it could be our fault period, when we don't teach it right. If we don't teach the truth, even if they do listen and we don't teach the truth, then we're responsible for misleading them. We teach the truth and we teach it with kindness and patience and all that. But then it really is a test of them. 
what they're going to do with the gospel. It's not a test of us. Because it's not, see, I think the thing that I'm concerned about, it's not really us that gets them to accept it. It's the word, it's the power of the word on their heart. And they've got an open heart. So if they receive the gospel, should we pat ourselves on the back? Wow, I found a way to get them to listen. No. And so if they reject the gospel, I don't think we ought to blame ourselves. Boy, I should have, I should have done it a different way. Maybe they'd accepted that. The right way is just plainly and from the Bible. Other thoughts? Yes. I think it's real easy to get prideful when you're teaching someone about something like that. We need to kind of have the humility that we are simply sowing the seed and we need to leave it up to God to actually grow the plant. If you teach somebody who has a good attitude, what kind of impact will the Bible message have on It'll change the walk. It'll impact them tremendously. And what should you think? You teach somebody, and it changes their life. And they turn to the Lord, and wow, it just has this huge impact on them. What should you think? Man, I'm good, aren't I? <laughs> wow, I can't believe I could do that. Well, why would you credit yourself? It wasn't you that invented that. You just passed it on. It was, it was the Lord. You know, we, we mistake. Well, you remember when, when John in the book of Revelation tried to worship the angel that was giving him the, the messages? That wasn't the right thing, was it? He thought the angel was actually inventing the message. The angel was just the messenger taking the message from God and giving it to John. It wasn't the angel that ought to be worshipped. It was the Lord who gave the message. But we get that confused. And we think that it's the person who passes it on who gets the credit. It's not him who should get the credit or the blame because it's not his message. Thoughts? Yes. Ezekiel 2, uh, verse 7. You shall speak my words to them whether they will listen or not, for they are rebellious. This goes along with what we were talking earlier. Absolutely. I would encourage you to read all 10 verses of chapter 2 because it's pretty simple. And most of chapter 3 is saying the same thing, too, yeah. Ezekiel 2 and 3 is a great example. God already told Ezekiel they were rebellious. They're going to listen. You teach it. But they won't listen. But you just proclaim the message. God wants the message proclaimed. But it's not up to us to make them listen or make them receive it or make them change. It's the gospel and them. Other thoughts? Cameron. I put another situation on it. What if they were already a Christian? They had already accepted the gospel, but they were weaker. And you were wanting to help or encourage them, and you're trying and trying, and they keep on um, coming up with something that's going to be going on or just rejecting you flat out. What would you do then? Would you try harder because they're, they're weakening, or what would you do? Well, it is right for us to pursue the lost sheep with love and compassion and concern, but we cannot make them turn back. You know, God pursued Saul, uh, the king of Israel, but Saul wouldn't listen. You know, God didn't keep trying to make him do what's right. So I think we try. We exhort one another daily so that we won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But, with, but everyone has free will. It's not me that's going to make anybody do what's right. Thoughts? It's not that been a helpful <clears throat> progression in my life because I really got a hard time with this idea and these words about you know give up or, or write them off. 
how this is a really you know, this emotional thing for me, and this is something that's really difficult for me. Um, and then I just realized that, you know, I'm never giving up, I'm never writing off. My role in their lives might be different. Um, I think obviously, uh, I think First Timothy, uh, Paul encourages Timothy to pray for all men for, you know, uh, God desires all men to be saved. And so one way we can do this is through prayer. Um, we also learn um, what Peter wrote, you know, as far as, you know, God is patient toward those to change. And so, you know, we can have a different role in those things. We're never giving up on people, certainly. Um, the Lord never does that as long as... Um, because we're still alive and able to repent, turn from our ways. So our role would be different as far as how we affect them, but giving up. Yeah, well, the person can do whatever they choose to do. The fact that I do not continue to try to exhort them doesn't keep them from changing. The so. parable of the prodigal son, the father didn't chase after the son or send a servant out to find him. But boy, he was there ready and willing to accept him back when he humbled himself. Excellent illustration. Yeah. Other thoughts? Okay. Um, 10 to 12. If you are slacking the day of distress, your strength is limited. Deliver those who are taking away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter will hold them back. If you say, see, we did not know this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts and does not, or does he not know it who keeps your soul and will he not render to man according to his work? Okay. Verse 10. If you're slack in the day of distress, your strength is limited. You know, if you can't stand up to pressure and adversity, then you're, you're limited in your strength. It is the difficulty that separates the men from the boys and shows who's strong and who's not. Anybody's strong when there's no pressure. You know, when it's easy, then everybody does well. So, your ability to stand up in hard situations really shows whether you have a backbone or not. Toughen up. Get ready for tough things and deal with them with strength. I think that's the point of that. Can we just avoid difficult situations? We are human. You know, difficulty part of life. And they're part of what God gives us to strengthen us and refine us and help us. We wouldn't even want it to where it was always easy and wasn't difficult. It is a blessing to us, but, but we need to be tough enough to face those things. I think we have raised a nation of crybabies. You know, we just won over nearly everything and feel so bad about, you know, wow, it's just so hard. Oh, I'm being so mistreated. Oh, this is so bad for me. We don't even know what it would be like to be bad. You remember the children of Israel in the wilderness? What did they always do? Complain. How did that make them look to us? Like crybabies, you're exactly right. They do. I mean, oh, they're always worried. It's so long, no water, same food, no food. Well, well, well. And God had done so much for them already. It really just looks quite ungrateful on their part. But what about us? Look at all the blessings God has given us. 
really ought to be more appreciative and less, you know, whiny. I, I was really impressed, you know, uh, a few, uh, last week, I guess, um, Gardner Hall has written a sort of a biography on a man who preached um, and lived most of his life in southern Africa, for short. He grew up in, in the country that now would be called Zimbabwe for the most part, and, and lived most of his life there. And, uh, wow, especially, the first chapter two tells about boys' parents moving to this area when they were in their early 20s. That was back in the 1920s. Brother Short is now in his 90s, I believe. Uh, the, the son. And so they moved there in the 1920s when he was a small child. Oh my, the conditions they endured. Just unbelievable. I mean, they got there and almost immediately Baby Foy got malaria, which was horrible, almost died. They were talking about how every day they had to force feed their children quinine to keep down the malaria symptoms, since everybody would have malaria at some point. And, oh, just so many things that were so incredibly difficult to deal with. Undersupported, difficult to find just alive and and how they were going everywhere teaching the gospel and helping people come to the Lord it was just enlightening and it's like and I think I have a bad and I, I whoa well, poor me you know I don't have enough money for you know this or that or or whatever wow if, if we could only just realize I mean we just look like spoiled brats you know I I think what would, can you imagine somebody who might suddenly be transported in time and space to right here, right now, looking at us and our complaints and what we would look like to them? You know, we should be totally embarrassed that we, we feel so bad for ourselves because we had a little inconvenience here very young. You know, a little stress now and then. We just really need to talk about comments. Kind of reminds me of Paul, you know, and everything he's got, been through, and yet I've never heard him complain. He's always writing about joy and things like that, and he sees how grateful he is simply to be alive. Great illustration. Wow, it's amazing because I don't know how I would have done with all that. It's hard to imagine. Other thoughts? We complain about the dishwasher breaking. Yes, yes. Oh, man. That's a real big adversity. We might have to even wash a dish or two by hand. It's amazing. You are right. I mean, you really stop and listen to us. It's embarrassing. It is embarrassing how, I don't know what the word is. I mean, how weak we are in dealing with things that stretch it to even call them adversities. Other thoughts? It's almost like we deserve this stuff. We really don't. Yeah, exactly. You now, if the dishwasher washer breaks, that's kind of a, you know, it's an injustice. You know, why did that thing break on me? It shouldn't. You know, 
as if we deserve it. Hey, really. I mean, stop and think about it. You know, stop and think about Some of you complain about conditions at home and things like parents and so forth. And some of you have a lot harder times than others. But, you know, think about some of the things you whine about with that. Some of them, you just don't forget about. It's amazing. Well, Dad won't let me do this. Oh, all right, so he won't. You know? I mean, at least, you know, he's probably letting you eat. You know? I mean, it could be, it could be that. I mean, it could be so much worse. And, and we do. We grow accustomed to any level of blessings. You know, whatever level we've got. And then just a smidgen off of that, and we think, oh, it's horrible. You know, how can I ever live? Other thoughts? Right, look at 11 and 12. This is more the trouble that comes to others. Deliver those who are being taken away to death. And those who are staggering to slaughter or hold them back. In other words, when other people are suffering and are being mistreated, jump in and help them and get involved with trying to, to support them. You think about times when people have helped those who were in a lot of trouble, who were in great distress, who maybe were dying or about to die, or who needed great help, and somebody else jumped in and got involved. I want you to think of Bible examples of that. What are some Bible illustrations of people who have helped somebody who was really having a hard time and who needed help? Boaz was willing to reach out and help Ruth when she was in great need, both when he let her glean in his fields to begin with, and then later on when he married her. Good point. Eben Malik. Eben Malik, who did what? He uh, went and told Zedekiah that he was sinning by letting Jeremiah die in the well. And so he... Got pulled back out. Yes. He pulled Jeremiah out of the well where his enemies had stuck him. And he took the initiative to get permission to do that. And the, the amazing thing about Eben Melech is he was a... He was in the king's court, I don't remember exactly. He was an Ethiopian. He wasn't even a Jew. But he sympathized with Jeremiah. And so he was willing to get involved. Like the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan, yes. Great illustration of that. And we all know that story and how he got involved. Can you think of some other examples? Macedonia. Okay, yes, giving him money various times when he needed that and willing particularly to help the poor saints in Jerusalem and giving out of their poverty. Good illustration. You've gotten several that I didn't have. Paul's nephew. Paul's nephew, you know, rescuing him from dying. Cameron. Abigail and Abel and David. Yes, rescuing him from doing something that would have been really bad and ultimately sort of rescuing her husband. No, he didn't take it that way. David servant. Wow, we got great examples. Obadiah sparing the prophets of God during the oppression of Jezebel, and uh, the midwives of Egypt sparing the Egyptian boy babies, and Aquila and Priscilla coming to the aid of Apollos, and also risking their lives for Paul. There's a lot of different levels of that. So when you see somebody in need, get involved and help them. If you say, see, we didn't know this. 
you'll have to render account. That's what we're tempted to say. Well, it's really none of my business. You know, I don't want to get involved. You know, uh, I don't really know anything about it. You know, think about the Good Samaritan. Well, I don't know anything about this guy. You know, I don't really know why he got beat up. I don't really know if he deserved it. You know, I don't know if maybe he's just, this is kind of a plot. You know, to, to somebody standing in the garden going to assault me. You know, and so forth. I mean, why get involved when you don't even really know the situation? Wouldn't that be tempting? So, don't say, oh, man, I don't know anything. You have a responsibility to help the person in distress. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Yes. In Brazil, Jessica, you may be able to help me with this, but I think there is a law that like if you see somebody in an accident or something, you are required to help them and take them to the hospital. Yeah, but if you see that they're dying, like if you, uh, you're sure that they are dying, if you touch them, you can be accused that you killed them. But, but if, if, they, if, they are, if they need help, you would have a, govern, a, a legal obligation to take them to the hospital if you could. Is that right? No, no, that's what I've heard. That, that's the case in Germany, I know. Okay. There's some friends of mine that uh, went over there um, uh, during the summer for a trip because they'd have to have the exchange soon. They said that if, if the cops, like if they're pulled over, if they see you drive past someone, they can pull you over and they can take you to jail for it. Yeah, okay. So uh, it's interesting, somebody, the, there'd be countries that would have laws that say you have to do that. Uh, I want you to think also, is there a deeper application of this principle? You know anybody who's uh, uh, going to die, but not physically? How about spiritually? You know, why do we not have a responsibility to intervene when there's people all around us that are going to be lost? And we have knowledge of the gospel that would save them. I think that's a very sober application. You know, and what do we say? Well, I don't, I don't know anything about this. You know, I don't want to get involved. And I think for all of us, that convicts us. And we need to pray for strength and help to do better and to get more involved. Kevin? Sometimes we even let the fact that I don't even know be actual truth. We, we don't even look for people. We don't notice. We just go on with our lives. We just, if we notice somebody, we'll go and help them, but we're not out there looking. But we should be out there looking for people who are struggling, whether it's physically or... Um, or spiritually, we should be going out and looking for them and then helping them get out of that situation. Just how hard is it to find people who are uh, in need spiritually? <laughs> <laughs> that really isn't much of a challenge, is it? And like, going back to the whole foolish thing, like you, when you seek out to help people and everything, it's up to them to improve themselves spiritually. Yes, but we know the gospel that could yeah, help like the we ones can, that have good hearts. Yeah, we can like teach them. Exactly. Like them to be devoted and carry it out. Exactly. Take initiative. Exactly. Kind of reminds me the Israelites are uh, conquering the land. You know, the people that have already conquered, you know, where they're going to be living. You know, their responsibility is to keep fighting, you know, with their brothers. You know, until, you know, the final victory, you know, until everybody is done. You know, and the Lord gives them rest, and everybody can go back to their homes. It's similar to us, you know, just because, you know, we're doing all right, and, you know, it's kind of smooth sailing for us right now, doesn't mean that, you know, we just, you know, 
snap in the hammock or whatever, you know, we're supposed to be helping our brothers and our sisters and our spiritual well. Yeah, it's easy to get selfish and, you know, only want to have a good circumstances for ourselves. But we really need to care about the other person who is about to die. That's the, I think we, we, we don't have the boldness and the concern to rescue others from their spiritual plight. Jacob. Uh, Jude 23 says, Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating the garment polluted by the flesh. Excellent passage, Jude 23. Yeah. And Job 29, talking about you know, the character of Job before, uh, really story, in verse 16 it says, I was a father to the needy, and I investigated the case which I did not know. Um, he looked for opportunities to help me. Yes, absolutely. In every level, we need to care about others and help as we can. We have opportunities. There is, there are things to do. We've got to get our minds off of ourselves and really involve ourselves in other people's afflictions, both physically and spiritually. There's the, the song, <clears throat> the older song that we would sing, Rescue the Perishing, Care for the Dying, Snatch Them in Pity from Sin and the Grave. And it goes on. And just It's a real good illustration of this passage. It's a really good song. If you read the words in that song, that's an especially powerful song. And uh, yeah, absolutely. We really need to listen to this. Alright. Um, we've got another section that really talks about qualities of wisdom. But I think we'll take these one at a time. So 13 and 14. My son, eat honey for it is good. Yes, the honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is thus for your soul. If you find it, then there will be a pleasure. And your hope will not be cut off. Okay, it starts out with an illustration. Eat honey. Um, how do you feel about honey? Yeah, it's good. I mean, you know, perhaps some of you don't do a lot of just eating straight honey. But we like things that are sweet. I mean, honey represented sweetness. Do you, most of you like sweets? Yeah. We generally have this, this desire for that. And so, with, you know, honey sweet in the mm -hmm. same way, wisdom is like honey for your soul. It's really delicious and, and enjoyable, and it'll help you. And we ought to look at wisdom like we look at honey. So when you are trying to read the scriptures and understand them, don't be holding your nose thinking, okay, I'm going to do my favorite. I hope this is a short chapter. You know, no, long for it. Love it. It's delicious. And it as well as nutritious. And, and that's the way we ought to look at it. You know, eat honey because it's good. And wisdom is just like that for your soul. It'll bless you so much. Pursue wisdom. What, is there a difference between doing your Bible reading and reading the Bible? <laughs> Have you done both of those? Yeah. How much do you get out of doing your Bible reading? Yeah, it's not very helpful. But reading the Bible is awesome. Yeah. That's the attitude we need to have. It's like honey, guys. Thoughts about that one? 
Okay, uh, 15 and 16. Do not lie in wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Do not destroy his resting place. For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in time of calamity. That remind you of anything? Kind of Stephen Rouse's song. <laughs> yeah. And he's he's get, actually giving some advice to the wicked man. What's he telling the wicked man? Do you still have hope? Not exactly. It's useless. Two. Yeah. Wicked man, don't even bother trying to bring about the downfall of the righteous man. Because it's a waste of time. You know, the righteous are a hardy bunch. You try to destroy their house and they'll just build it back. You knock them over seven times, they'll rise again. You know, you just can't destroy the righteous. The wicked are in a, an ultimately unsuccessful endeavor because God gives the righteous man strength. Can you imagine how frustrated Satan must have been in the first century? <laughs> man, I'll tell you what. Thought he had it. I mean, you know, he killed Jesus. And what happened? He rose back again. <laughs> That, that, that's got to be frustrating. So the, the, the apostles start preaching. And what does the devil do? Yeah, he starts persecuting them. Well, what does that cause? Yeah. They started preaching to the judges and the governors. And then, then finally, they start fleeing. He gets them dispersed. And what does that do? Yeah, it spreads the message out farther. <laughs> and he gets Saul of Tarsus and he makes him a monster, breathing out threatenings and slaughterings against the Lord. And what happens to him? <laughs> Can you imagine what it must have been like to be Satan? Everything you do backfires on you. It blows up in your face. It's like... Everything you do to stomp out the gospel just spreads. It just spreads. It just spreads. It, it, it'd be horrible to be Satan. Because you just can't get the righteous man down. That's, that's the blessing we have from the Lord. Wisdom is resilient. You know, but for the wicked, you know, look at 16. For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. But the wicked stumble in time of calamity. Just one blow crushes the wicked forever. But the righteous man just keeps popping back up. Comments and questions on that? All right, 17 and 18. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. But the Lord sees it and he pleases him. And he turns his way around. This is an interesting proverb. What's he warning you against doing? Taking joy in the defeat of your enemy. Yes. Gloating over your enemy being destroyed. You know, oh, yeah. He's getting what's coming to him. God hates smugness. You know, because what's going to happen when you take this fiendish joy in the downfall of your enemy? 
same is going to happen to you. Perhaps so, or at least God is going to, uh, you know, quit punishing him and perhaps turn his anger to you. You know, uh, don't, don't rejoice when your enemy, you know, suffers. That's not the right thing. This is different from praying for God to punish his enemies and the enemies of the truth. We're talking here about just personal enemies. And you want him to go down. You know, don't do that. It'll, it'll backfire on you. Thoughts and comments about that? Brandon. Matthew 5.44, by said, you love your enemies, bless those who curse you, be good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Amen. Maybe a backdoor way of looking at this. When the evil men, when your enemies fall, that's obviously because of the Lord sometimes. And uh, perhaps the reason for this warning is don't take joy in, in the vengeance that the Lord gives because of your own dislike of them. Um, don't place yourself in God's position even in thought, much less taking vengeance upon your enemies. Yes. That's exactly right. Yeah. Because you don't have to actually be the one to break them down, to have the wrong attitude of wanting to see them brought down and gloating over that. Yeah, good point. Um, there's also another verse that says, like, if you're kind to your enemies, then it'll be like pouring hot coals on them. Yes, that's right. Yeah, it, it will make them, um, you know, perhaps feel the guilt of how they've treated you. The, the right thing to do is to wish for the best for everyone and, and want them to be blessed. Um, you ought to want people to be saved even who've mistreated you and seek to bless them. Alright, how about 17 and, oh no, 19 and 20. Sorry. Do not fret because of evildoers or be envious of the wicked for there will will be no future for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. So, we're again, don't get all uptight because the wicked man seems to be doing well. Because what's going to happen? He is going to fall. Uh, God will see to it that there is no future for him. So don't rejoice at the misfortunes of your enemies, verse 17 and 18, and don't worry when they seem like they're doing well. God will cause justice to be done. There's no doubt about that. You know, if, if the person is truly wicked and doesn't repent, they will get it in the end. Don't you worry about it. It's not up to us to see to it that they get brought down. God will certainly handle that. I would say that verse 20, when he says there will be no future for the evil man, may be a passage that hints at life beyond the grave. There's no future for him. For the evil man, presumably there is for the righteous man. You know, he's the one that doesn't have a future because there's no eternal reward for him. Comments and questions on that? All right, 21 and 22. My son, fear the Lord and the King. Do not associate with those who are given to change, for their calamity will rise suddenly. And who knows the ruin that will come from both of them. Okay. Fear the Lord and the King. That's a good order. The Lord always first. 
But then those who are in governmental authority, we ought to fear also. What does he mean when he says, do not associate with those who are given to change? The NIV reads the rebellious. I don't know if that's fair. I think it is. Don't you join in the plot to overthrow the government. You know, don't you be the revolutionary who's always trying to throw off restraint. That's certainly true when it comes to the government. I would suggest that, that you can make a good application of that to even in a church. You shouldn't be the guy who's always trying to rebel against those who are leaders. You know, shouldn't be a rebellious natured person. Respect those who are in authority. Um, there will be a sudden fall for those who are rebels. Thoughts and comments about that? Reminds me a lot of Cora. Yes. Um, Cora didn't claim um, in what he said to be, you know, let's forget about God, let's worship the gods of the Egyptians, or let's, you know, but in rebelling against Moses, he was rebelling against, you know, the authority that God had established, and he found himself very quick, swift, and. That's a good point. Yeah, that was not a pleasant uh, way to go. Yeah, we should respect those that God has put in authority. Other thoughts? Twenty-three to twenty-five. These also are sayings of the wise. To show partiality and judging is not good. Whoever says to the guilty, you are innocent. People will curse him and nations denounce him. But it will go well with those who convict the guilty. The rich blessing will come upon them. He's basically encouraging what? Honesty. Honesty and justice. You know, we ought to be fair and right in our judgments and not show partiality, not play favorites. <laughs> you know, we ought to be, you know, uh, just. It's not right to condone the wicked. It's not right to let the wicked man get off the hook. We ought to always just act with justice. Two of your friends have a fight, they have an argument, you ought to seek to say the thing that's fair and just, not just favor the one who's your best friend. You know, your child misbehaves, you ought to not make excuses for them, but treat them like you would somebody else's child in this behavior. Be fair. Be impartial. Thoughts and comments about that? Um, when Hezekiah became king, uh, he like he was uh, uh, taking the Passover back and you know getting the worship back and and. It's interesting to me. He invited like all the Israelites back to worship with the with the with Judah, and like it was fair of him to invite them back because the Assyrians had already destroyed Israel and taken away almost everyone there. So he's taking all the you know the left outcasts and taking them back and giving them a chance. Good point. Yes. Good point. Second Chronicles thirty, I think. Other thoughts. 
26 says, he kisses the lips who gives a right answer. You know, what a blessing to say the right thing. To say the thing that's faithful and honest. It's so good to hear that. You know, Proverbs says so much about uh, the negative impact of words. It's nice to realize also that the right word at the right moment is a blessing. Thoughts and comments on that one? So if we um, answer any questions, you're not going to kiss us, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I just have a note that the kiss in the ancient world communicated loyalty as well as affection. So it, it, it may mean a little bit different to them than it does to us today. Yes. There you go. <laughs> 27, this is really helpful. Prepare your work outside and make it ready for yourself in the field. Afterwards then, build your house. So you have to observe the correct order of operations. What do you need to do first? Get your fields ready. Get the fields ready. You know, plant and tend the crops before you do what? Before you build your house. Why? Set up a good foundation. Yes. What good is a house if you're not able to eat? Exactly. First things first, get an income before you build the house. You produce before you consume. You know, to to provide a comfortable place to live before you have anything to eat, that doesn't make any sense. You won't be able to survive to live there. So, so do the things you need to do first. The first priority is you've got to get those crops. You, it's, it'd be good to build a house, get one built when you can, but don't, don't do that first. Now, we need to have the right priorities in those things. I think we should say, you know, providing... You know, food, clothing, and shelter comes before toys. How many men do you know that neglect the financial needs of their family because they want their truck? Or because they want their Xbox? Or because they want whatever? You know, there's, there's needs at home, but I want my whatever. That is so foolish. You know, first tend the fields. I'm going to make another application, but thoughts and comments so far? Kevin. This verse is a lot about priorities and um, what brings fruit first. And I think calling it a spiritual, what brings fruit first is serving God, or dedicating ourselves to God, and going out and teaching. And uh, whether or not... Um, whether or not those around us are following us, we need to step out and start following God first, and then that will bring fruit and then following us. Okay, good point. John? I knew a number of people growing up where they would build a house, but they only built the basement. And then they lived in the basement for years, and then later built what we would call the rest of the house. And you know, it looked, it, it, on the surface, it would look kind of odd. It's like, wow, you know, that, that house isn't finished. But evidently, they were building what they could afford and then later when they could afford to build the rest they did um, and so I think it illustrates the, the principle of, of this passage as well. 
That is Brazil, isn't it, Jessica? How many houses are finished in Brazil? Mine is not. Yeah, <laughs> nobody's is. Everybody's always still building on their house. As they get the money, they're going to do more. They're going to make it more finished. They're going to add more, etc. I mean, that's almost universal in Brazil. And that makes sense. You do what you can as you can. Now think about this application. Before you get married, be able to financially support your wife. Would that be an appropriate application? You know, have a means of making a living before you start your family? I don't mean by that we have to have a mansion. But, you know, sometimes we want what we want before we're able to really support it or afford it. So, you know, first things first, get a job before you get married. Or get a job before you buy the car that you can't afford to put gas in, etc. You know, earn the money before you spend it. I think that's the idea. Kind of funny in our country that we seem to have the opposite view. <laughs> you know, spend first, earn later. <laughs> but that is uh, not nearly as effective. Other comments and thoughts? I heard a car commercial um, talking about how, you know, we'll give you more money for your trade-in so you can buy a new car. You know, we want you to meet your financial goals by giving you this money and then signing a seven-year <laughs> car loan. <laughs> yes. It's almost like it's financially irresponsible not to borrow money. <laughs> Somehow or other, that just doesn't seem quite right. But that's the way they work it. You're being more responsible because this is such a good deal, you know. The more you buy, the more you save. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Something's just not quite right about that, don't you think? You know, gets to the point where you can't afford all the money you're saving. <laughs> Other comments? 28, 29. Do not be a witness against your neighbor without cause, and do not deceive with your lips. Do not say, thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. Okay. So, uh, you know, don't be a false witness. You know, there's a commandment in the Ten Commandments about that. Um, and don't try to take vengeance. Vengeance is not an excuse for perjury. It's never right to lie about somebody. I don't care what they did to you. You always are honest and just and tell the truth. Does that make sense? Comments and questions? Do what? Yes. All right, uh, I think I'm going to stop here. Uh, so let's uh, pick up in 2430. Uh, 2430 to 34 is a very good uh, passage and be a good one to start with, I think, uh, next time.